Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Is Texit a serious thing? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at CorumReport.com. Jeremy Wallace is the ace political reporter at the Houston Chronicle and HoustonChronicle.com. He is here as always. Hello, sir. Yep. How are you doing? I'm good. Ready to go? Oh, I am ready. I feel energized this week for some reason. Um, usually on Fridays, I've just about had it and I'm kind of um, just spent and therefore I'm kind of grumpy. Usually that makes for a better show in the estimation of the listener, just I don't have any tolerance for any nonsense. Um, but I feel great. So let's see how this goes. This might be a little, diff- <laughs> a, a little bit of a different spin on things. Beto O'Rourke may be running for governor. We will get to that a little bit later here in the program. Uh, but first, we have to start with what's going on in Washington and how it affects what's happening in Texas. As we mentioned last week, Biden in office immediately was clashing with Texas Republicans over some of his executive orders. I saw this week where Governor Abbott was signing his own executive order to try to counter Biden on energy policy. And we'll get to that at some point. Uh, And I do want to talk about one of the governor's priorities. But first, it's the second impeachment. This is in the Senate now. It went through the House and it's being called vindictive by Republicans. As I mentioned before on the show, you're now hearing Trump supporters lecture all the rest of us about what is divisive. Um, And so, yes, you have heard it all. Senator John Cornyn, who seemed more concerned about all of this right after the riot, right after the insurrection at the Capitol, as a lot of Republicans did, right? A A lot of people in the GOP seem to take this a little bit more seriously in the way of maybe needing to Um, create some kind of accountability for President Trump right after they had been attacked at the Capitol. But now that that's sort of in the rearview mirror, it's being viewed a little bit differently. Here's John Cornyn uh, on KHOU in Houston. Never before has there been a trial of a person who used to be president but is no longer president. And it just strikes me as a a vindictive uh, move. You know, say what you will about the president's role in uh, a speech he gave, uh, he's no longer president. That used to be uh, punishment enough. I think it was a big mistake to give that speech in front of this large crowd and then to tell them to go to the Capitol. I think what we need to hear is what really the president intended because incitement is really about your intention. I don't know why they felt the need to put music under that, but there you have it. So, So you hear the senior senator saying, what are we doing here, Jeremy? On Fox News Channel, Cornyn followed up by saying there doesn't seem to be a clear path for impeaching a former president. Well, in any trial, and an impeachment is no different in this respect, there's the factual scenario, and we were literally witnesses to that. We experienced it the shocking events of uh, January the 6th. But there's also a, a fair process, sometimes called due process of law, where the Both sides get a fair shot to examine witnesses, and then the burden is on the impeachment managers to present the case. 
it seems to me that uh, Nancy Pelosi and the impeachment managers are relying strictly on having experienced the events of January the 6th as a base, sole basis upon which to uh, impeach uh, President uh, Trump, even though he's a private citizen. So there's two parts of that. One is the, the factual scenario that we all experienced ourselves, and the other is simply the fact that this has never happened before. There's no a clearly marked path for navigating an impeachment trial for somebody who's no longer president. Now, Senator Cornyn, who's part of Republican leadership in the Senate, he and the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, again, had sort of a different tone about this right after the attack at the Capitol. Uh, I think two things have happened, Jeremy. Uh, I wonder if you agree. One is we've just had some time pass between then and now. And in that time, the second thing is these Republicans have heard from Trump supporters who still make up the majority of the Republican base by a long shot, and they've heard from the base that they don't like this at all, and that um, the division in the country is being driven by Democrats who want to hold the president accountable. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it seems they, uh, as the further we get away from January 6th, uh, there's a, I think the the tone is just going to soften some. But the one thing that could you know change that or you know, a lot of the trials and, you know, a lot of the issues we're seeing in the people who have been arrested, uh, you know, some of the stories coming out now, uh, new videos that are surfacing seemingly every day showing just how horrible <coughs> it all was. The New York mm-hmm. Times has had uh, some video that they got from one of the, uh, uh, you know, arrests, you know, that they did, I think, of a guy in Michigan. And there's mm-hmm. literally a woman being trampled to death, and they're calling for help. Yeah, you know, and but she's being trampled to death as a guy with a hockey stick takes ten whacks at a police officer who's a mar- the the the, mm-hmm. the guy who's doing it is a, allegedly a marine. You know, you just like, and so I think as people see more of that and, and get mm-hmm. reminded of just how intense and how scary it was, you see you know, a lot of those mm-hmm. members of Congress. You know, it's like, you know, I, I know there's a partisan divide starting to happen, but there's still a lot of members of Congress who thought their lives were in jeopardy, you know. And so and, and that's going to be hard for them to kind of get over. <laughs> it's hard to turn the page on and they're going to want to try to hold the president accountable or the ex-president accountable, mm-hmm. even if yeah. constitutionally it's a. I, I, I think Gordon's right. Constitutionally, it's like we've never done this before. You know, how do you how do you right. excommunicate a guy who's already been excommunicated? Right. You know, it's like so there's some mm-hmm. logic in what he's saying, but it but sometimes logic takes a back seat to the emotion of, you know, people literally dying on the steps of the Capitol yeah. because of maybe what the president said again. Maybe they still have to prove that part, but right. isn't it worth the conversation? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's the question everybody's kind of wrestling with. You know, is it or is it not? You know, and right now we're hearing from Republicans, yeah. it's not. You know, it's like, well, they're saying they're saying we've never done this before. I would note the irony of defenders of Donald Trump using the idea that something's never been done before as the true. reason. To not <laughs> that's good. Very good point. Yeah. I mean, but. President Trump uh, did lots of things that we never did before. His whole thing was about busting norms, right? And in fact, he took pride in that. Um, you know, that was the criticism from some folks, but he liked that. He would say, I don't have to be politically correct. And just because we did things, you know, this way in the past doesn't mean that we do those things, uh, you know, now. That's, uh, we don't have to continue on the same path. It will be fascinating to watch all that unfold. And on those videos, um, we don't have to guess why the folks who uh, participated in the insurrection, we don't have to guess why they thought they did it. In a lot of the videos, yeah. they say why they did it, right? They're talking about the words of the president, 
They're talking about the words of Ted Cruz, um, and Cruz got into it with AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, this week. She was talking uh, about a different issue uh, on Twitter, right? Uh, I saw that she was talking about this whole day, and we won't get into the whole deal right now, but it's fascinating. She was talking about uh, the sort of gaming of the game stock, yeah. stock on Wall Street, and Cruz was trying to agree with her about her position on that, but she didn't have a good reaction when he tried to. Oh agree, my gosh. Right? Oh my what gosh. Yeah. It's like, and so, you know, all, all Ted Cruz said, I is, I agree <laughs> with, you know, basically where her position was it's all he wrote. I agree. But yeah, I fully agree with what she said. And then he did the emoji yeah. of the hand. So AOC clearly is not over January 6th. And so her, her, you know, tweet back to him pretty quickly was, I am happy to work with Republicans on this issue where there's common ground, but you almost had me murdered mm. three weeks ago. So you can sit this one out. Mm. Uh, and it went on from there. There were three wow. more tweets <laughs> before she was done uh, making it clear that she is not working with Ted Cruz <laughs> and doesn't want his help on any of this stuff anymore. And then she uh, obviously punctuated yeah. with a, you need to resign. And so that has not ended. <laughs> Ted Cruz is just too close to January 6th, probably try to make it sound like he's on the side of AOC. Why he decided to retweet her tweet uh, <clears throat> with that you know, I agree. It kind of confuses me. It's like, I'm not sure what the mission was there. Maybe he's looking for any kind of bipartisanship, uh, you know, in the midst of all the division that he helped to cause someone who was there on January 6th was a Texas state legislator named Kyle Biederman. Uh, Mr. Biederman is a business owner. Uh, He owns the Ace Hardware in Fredericksburg. I did Did not know know that. that. That's his, uh, that's, that's his deal out there. And he was elected to the Texas House of Representatives a few years back, and he was uh, on the Chris Salcedo show, um, which is a, a radio program, defending the people who were at the insurrection as, quote, mostly peaceful people who, you know, had nothing to do with this attack on the Capitol, which he does at some point. You know, there was there were a lot of people there who did not participate in that. He says he didn't participate in that. And I mentioned Texit at the top of the show. Uh, Biederman has filed a bill with all of this as the backdrop, all the division, um, you know, caused over the impeachment and the you know the riot and the the fact that the president, at the root of it, just would not admit that he lost the election. Which, of course, is really what, in the estimation of most folks who've looked at this objectively, that's what caused people to be, um, you know, in a mood to riot. You know, no matter what was said right right before it happened at the rally. Um, but Biederman has filed this bill to start the process of this of this state leaving the United States. I think I'm saying that right. Um, I'm, <laughs> this was from a report about his bill. A Texas state legislator who marched at the Capitol on January 6th says Washington is so broken that Texas needs to break out on its own. Republican Representative Kyle Biederman introduced the, quote, Texas Independence Referendum Act this past week, a formal bill that would make moves toward Texas seceding from the United States. Now, he was asked by Chris Salcedo on his radio show if this would be sort of a new civil war in the making, which is what some uh, critics have said about it. And Biederman says, no, that is not. (laughs) Of course not. And again, all we have to do is look at Brexit from, um, from Britain, from England. They had a vote by the people, and then they started a process 
to talk with the EU, the uh, European Union, about um, leaving the Union and what that would look like, how it would be done, whether it's through, you know, military, whether it's through, um, you know, uh, debt and everything else. We have the same thing here in the United States. Now, Salcedo uh, asked him about the riots at the Capitol and the idea that most of the folks who were there, you know, kept it peaceful. Uh, and this is one of those examples, Jeremy, of these folks trying to have it both ways. On the one hand, Biederman is saying most people were, you know, um, not participating in this riot and the violence that ended in the death of uh, five people. Uh, but he also says the riots are evidence that people are tired of being mocked for supporting President Trump. So people want to be heard. And the only way for them to really be heard is if we start a process that forces them to start um, addressing our grievances. Now, you know, some of the supporters of this are going to say it's not really a secession discussion. You remember how the Texas GOP chairman, Alan West, had said, uh, you know, uh, some things about maybe uh, states that want to lawfully, uh, yep. you know, go, go through the elections process, that they should band together. Uh, in sort of a union yeah. of states that are um, acting lawfully. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. Then then he said, I never use the word secession, though. Okay. Well, listen, again, trying to have it both ways, the, the people who are in this camp. Listen to how Salcedo and Biederman are talking about this proposal. As soon as a, a productive state like Texas starts talking about leaving the union, a secession, if you will, uh, you've got you get these AOCs and these Bernie Sanders folks who say, well, wait a minute, we need you guys to work and sweat so you can fund all of our <laughs> socialist laziness so you can fund all of our all of our socialism. So that's why they, they look at people as cattle to do their bidding. And, and I, this if this in, uh, initiative gets a vote here in Texas and let's just say it passes, doesn't that begin a very serious discussion that we need to have as a country? You're exactly right. And in fact, the bill will say, um, give the people a vote to start a process. And then the process actually says we will have to have a committee formed that will talk about currency, talk about Social Security, talk about pensions, talk about military, military bases. What would happen? And what are our grievances that we want with the federal government that we'd like to have um, reconciled? Jeremy, um, the, the same folks who say that the other side's being divisive are literally talking about dividing up the yeah, United and, States. Yeah, and all we need to do is just like, you know, flip back to uh, the last time we went through this, 1861, right? <laughs> I, I, you know, as, mm -hmm. as if you read anything on American history from 1861, this is exactly what Abraham Lincoln said to the South. You know, this is, you know, there is nothing in the United States Constitution that allows you to dissolve the Union or to leave the union especially when you know all americans have paid for the things that are in your state <laughs> you know it's like if you think you know like a little piece of history texas wasn't always as big as it was you know that it is today right you know not mm -hmm. just from a population yeah. you know not from a landmass obviously but from population standpoint uh we were pretty small oh, sure. when they were building the interstate highway system with federal dollars from places like new york in New England, and we're right. also the place where they put all these military bases in there that are United States American property, which is the whole reason, yeah. you know, if, again, not to go too Civil War on everybody here, but since we're there, since they're <laughs> taking us back there, there's a reason Fort Sumter was a big issue in South Carolina. It was a military base funded by the Americans that was under attack. 
So what happens to like Lackland Air Force Base, right? Yeah, what happens to Kelly and Lackland and, you know, all the bases in San Antonio? You know, it's like, how do you secede, yeah. you know, when that's American property, you know, there? It's like the whole conversation mm-hmm. is so frustrating from understanding history and realizing that this has just gone too far. You know, to, to, why do we it, keep it talking got, about secession in Texas? It's over. It, right. It, with some folks, and, and it is not among people who are uh, necessarily native Texans. I know plenty of native Texans who don't agree with this at all. Uh, but among some native Texans and among some transplants who just got here and don't know any of the history you're talking about, they think this is some kind of a conversation that you should be able to have. But you don't have to go back in history, even though that is important context, to understand why this is a stupid idea. Uh, they laid out a budget in Texas uh, for our uh, upcoming two-year budget cycle uh, that is exactly about $7 billion short of what the state's accountant, the comptroller, Glenn Hager, said uh, will be available to spend over the next 24 months. How are they going to make up that other $7 billion? Well, if you look at uh, the budget numbers, it's pretty clear the federal dollars are going to yes, mostly make up the exactly. difference. Right. So that they don't have to make big cuts in government services in Texas. So, uh, you know, leaving the union... Maybe that's an idea in in three years or four years, but at least for right now, during this legislative session, I don't well, see that going what? anywhere. <laughs> Just for that, well, it's not going to go anywhere anyway. But my point is this: you can't yep. make it work. It's a stupid idea. Well, and, 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 and you know, to your point there is like so all of those like Medicare dollars and Medicaid dollars and Social Security dollars, all of that stuff goes away if Texas is <laughs> leaving the union. <laughs> it's like, do we not understand yeah. this? It's like it's just this weird thing. It's like we're Americans. It's just like, you know, like mm-hmm. for Texans to act un-American is insane to me. It's like, you know, it seems like all we hear is about the spirit of Texans and our independence, our ruggedness, mm-hmm. and all that is great. But we're also Americans. And it's like and to try to divide that American yeah. history from Texas is just just weird. It's wrong. In Texas, we have, um, as one one of my friends described it to me, we have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows when it comes to the history of this. Um, You know, when you look at the um, declarations uh, of secession, of leaving the Union, uh, there were only two states that specifically said they were leaving because they wanted to preserve slavery. Texas was one of them. So that's the lowest of low, right? On the highest of high, we had, you know, as far as our history is concerned, we have the fact that one of our founding fathers in Texas um, was adamantly opposed to leaving the Union. And that was Sam Houston, right? Everyone in Texas knows and has heard about and learned about Sam Houston and what a hero he is in you know the establishment of the state. Well, they kind of ran him off over the issue, yeah. right? They, they he said, "No, uh, we didn't do all this work to join the United States. We didn't do, we didn't uh, establish all of this to then turn around and leave." Makes no sense. Now, this bill may or may not get a you know serious hearing in the legislature. We'll keep, we'll keep track of it. I, I I tend to doubt it. I don't think that's going anywhere. And I've heard from a lot of Republicans who say it's they say what you just said. It is un-American and a silly idea, and they should stop talking about it. In this legislative session, I am no longer rolling my eyes at the the idea we might have some expansion of gambling in Texas, and for a few reasons. One, as you reported out at HoustonChronicle.com, Sheldon Adelson, the late casino magnate from Las Vegas, 
um, and he just passed away on the opening day of session. Um, during the election cycle, he gave a lot of money to Texas Republicans as they were working to hold their majorities, right? What was he, the number? Uh, he and his wife combined to give, uh, you know, $4.5 million just to, that, to you know, state reps. And then, you know, since then, yep. you know, he dropped uh, 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 500000 on Governor Greg Abbott, and he threw uh, mm-hmm. 20000 to New House Speaker uh, Dade Phelan. So you can see, like, right. you know, even, you know, in his last month, you know, on Earth, you know, he Adelson was shoveling money into Texas on this hope that Texas is finally going to allow casino gambling. Yes. Now, the other reason that I'm no longer rolling my eyes is the uh, the firepower uh, from the lobby that they're bringing to this. Some of those lobby names include some big folks like um, uh, Karen Rove who is the wife of Carl Rove, the architect, is what George W. Bush always called uh, Rove. Um, another one, yep. Stan Schleter, uh, who's a former legislator, one of the big guns in Austin. But here was the most interesting to me. And this doesn't necessarily, and there was a reason I was careful to not say casinos necessarily, but, but expansion of gambling. The most interesting one to me is Alan Blakemore, who is the top spokesman for and strategist for on the campaign side for Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who is one of the most conservative, uh, you know, state leaders who has previously been opposed to this sort of, you know, this sort of stuff. Alan Blakemore is now lobbying for Bet MGM, which is not necessarily about casinos. That's their online sports book, right? So there's been a lot of question, Jeremy, about whether or not we could get physical casinos as you know, one of these giant resorts or a few of these giant resorts that would be integrated with our cities like in Houston or Dallas. Um, but a baby step, if you will, could be that you might be able to, you know, bet on a few uh, football games or basketball games yeah, or whatever and, else. And, and there's even more gambling money out there. It's like, you know, I, I just have the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so, you know, you, you still got guys like Tillman Fertitta in Houston, right? You know, it's like everybody calls him the mm-hmm. uh, CEO of Landry's. Well, Landry's also owns a string of casinos all over the country, including – Including right over the the border mm-hmm. in Louisiana, and the Choctaw Nation also mm-hmm. has you know, donated big to you know, Dade Veland as well. And you know, it's like why would an Oklahoma tribe uh, that runs you know mega casinos on the other side of the Texas border have any interest in sending donations to our House Speaker? You know, you can see there's a lot of a lot moving here. That clearly somebody sees mm-hmm. something happening. In my tally, going through the lobbyist roles, I counted uh, I think 69 you know lobbyists you know that are working you know, just from the you know, the four big companies that I found. You know that you know Bet MGM, mm-hmm. which is a division of MGM, uh, and then you have yeah. Caesars you know involved. You got you know obviously the Las Vegas Sands guys. You got Boyd Gaming involved. They're all here. They're all mm-hmm. looking at a piece of this pie if the Texas legislature would allow them to change the Texas state constitution, which right now prohibits any expansion of gaming. So how do you get over that? Going to yeah. be a tough climb. Well, any expansion of, well, physical casinos. I There's some question about uh, if it was online gaming, um, with, because the, uh, the physical casinos, that's what would require the constitutional uh, change, which is a two-thirds vote yep. in the legislature, which I think is really difficult to get there on that. But I would be surprised, given the budget situation uh, in Austin, if they were going to move forward on that. I did see, and you probably saw this, 
the uh, Speaker of the House, uh, Dade Phelan, who you mentioned, uh, he had said that if they were going to move forward with casinos, he'd be more interested in not revenue to the state, but revenue to local governments where the casinos would actually be located. In other words, and I'm paraphrasing, if they think they can come in and create um, uh, you know, more revenue for a state budget that's about to be written in the next couple of months, they're probably yeah. out of luck on that because those because revenue would not be flowing into the state from casinos uh, for quite some time. Even if they said, you know, this year we're going to go ahead and hold a vote in November, which is, I think, the quickest they could do it. If they were going to do that, um, you wouldn't see, uh, you know, gaming revenue coming into the state of Texas for quite some time. One of the other big issues, and I think this is going to be uh, something that is a real throwdown at the Capitol, um, and I, I can imagine this happening. Uh, Governor Abbott was in Midland this week, and he was bad-mouthing Joe Biden, and he was saying that, um, what did he say here? He said that Biden's energy moves, his executive orders are an attack on Texas. Um, We talked about that a little bit last week, you know, with the the Biden administration already clashing with Texas Republicans. Don't want to rehash all of that. But the legislative issue that he brought up that I think is fascinating is the question of whether businesses ought to be um, immune, basically, from lawsuits over COVID-19 exposure for employees and people who uh, patronize those businesses. This is, And it was almost sort of a, sort of a throwaway uh, line in this press conference, Jeremy, but, but highly important. And it's the first comments I remember from Governor Abbott about this, at least since the legislative session got underway. I want to see, I'm talking to our legislators now, I want to see a bill get to my desk as quickly as possible providing civil liability protection for any business in the state of Texas that opens safely, that operated safely, uh, to make sure that they will not be in the crosshairs of lawsuits that could put them out of business. When I tweeted this out, Jeremy, uh, the quote from Governor Abbott, the immediate response from a lot of people was, how does he define yeah, opening safely? Yeah, that's the safely? key word right there. That's <laughs> Right. And, and and does that mean that's, you know, just the businesses that followed exactly what his executive orders were, which some folks have ordered, you know, have argued was not safe at all? Uh, you usually have the uh, numbers uh, at the ready there for where we are with COVID-19. But I think you can at least generally speak to the fact that we haven't done that well uh, in Texas. And, and one point that I've made repeatedly, and I'll say it again here, it, you know, we have a better fiscal picture for the state budget than a lot of folks expected. Yeah. Right. A big reason for that, the comptroller said this in his comments when he issued his revenue uh, estimate for the next two years, a, a huge reason for that is because businesses were open in the last half of 2020. And so sales tax receipts for the state, which uh, sales taxes, that's the uh, top revenue stream for the state of Texas. Those receipts were way higher than they expected. Now, why would that be? Because those businesses are open. And as the governor has admitted And he admitted this in a private conference call. Remember, we reported this out. The governor had said that as businesses open, COVID-19 will spread faster. So there is a direct trade-off here, right? That COVID-19 spread faster. At the same time, uh, we saw the economy picking back up in Texas. Now, people can make a judgment about whether that's good or bad, but there's no question that those numbers uh, for the disease went higher because of those reopenings, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and you just kind of wonder, it's like, you know, what kind of protections are we talking about? You know, it's like it, the extent mm-hmm. of it, you know, 
because we know once we get out of the pandemic, yeah, you know, look, a lot of people on the right are are right. You know, there's going to be trial lawyers looking for, you know, uh, cases. You know, it's like, and and sometimes it's going to be legitimately so. You're gonna you're gonna have somebody who Mm -hmm. was absolutely fine and got sick because they had to go to work when everybody else wasn't. And this question is going to be: Did that person ever need to be there when the standard seemed to be? you could have people work from home. So like those cases are going to be real. And it's, it's interesting if the legislature shuts those down, what kind of stories are we going to hear? You know, we're going to hear from like, you know, think of places like El Paso and down along the, the you know, in the Rio Grande Valley where, you know, things were really bad. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people have died in those places. And like, and if, if we, yeah. you know, there's going to be cases that's going to like really tug at our heartstrings about somebody just trying to go to work. You know, and then because things weren't safe, you know, that person ended up dying or a family member died or something like that. So shouldn't there be redress for that? You know, that's going to be the question. The legislature is going to have to kind of, you know, hit that somehow narrowly to make sure that it doesn't take away our rights to, you know, sue for, you know, redress. Right. Oh, sure. Um, but to your point about uh, Adelson and his uh, spending in the elections, of, you know, nearly $5 million for Texas House members and then you know, contributions to the governor, uh, the group that will be uh, pushing for this, for uh, you know, limiting civil liability, that's the oh, tort yeah. reformers. And guess what? TLR puts a lot of money into Texas they politics. Do. Right there at the end, I think it was the the eight day reports, it was $11 million for Texas house members as they tried to, uh, you know, hold on to their majority, which they did huge amounts. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, right toward the end, they were canceling out almost dollar for dollar, all of what we had heard about yep. from the Democrats who were spending money to try to win that majority. So watch that space, watch it closely. You talked earlier about Ted Cruz and AOC and they're back and forth. She's very angry with him. You know, who else is mad at him? Well, People are going to say it's sour grapes. Uh, some folks will say that. But Beto O'Rourke back on the scene this week. Uh, what was this radio show that he was uh, uh, interviewed yeah, on? A, yeah, it's an Something FM radio uh, station out in El Paso. Uh, you know, Buzz Adams. You know, has a you know, radio show out mm-hmm. there, and uh, he was able to get you know his pal Beto O'Rourke to call into the show via Skype. Yeah, he said that uh, Ted Cruz shouldn't have attended the inauguration of Joe Biden, specifically because of his role in inciting the riot at the United States Capitol. Yeah, I I just don't think this guy gets to wash off the stain of sedition. You know, uh, on Twitter, he's uh, snapping pictures of, hey, J-Lo singing the anthem. There's Garth Brooks and, and there's Biden being sworn in. God bless America. No way, man. You you fanned the flames of, of insurrection. You helped to incite the plotters of that coup. Um, you, you were going to do everything in your power to overturn that election. You offered to Donald Trump to be his advocate in front of the Supreme Court with our attorney general, Ken Paxson in Texas's uh, lawsuit to overturn the election. Even after the storming of the Capitol, you took to the Senate floor and attempted to pursue this, this quest which, which was really cynical. You knew you weren't going to succeed. You, you knew that you didn't have the votes in the Senate, but you thought you could lock up the support of the 7 million plus Trump voters in, or 70 million plus Trump voters in, in America. 
Beto, the former uh, El Paso congressman, was loaded for bear in this interview, Jeremy. He also said it's pretty funny that Cruz is now Trump's biggest defender after everything that Cruz said about Trump previously, going back to uh, 2016. What he's been able to do, or at least attempt to do, is to uh, shift shapes over the course of his political career, whichever way the wind is blowing. When he's running for the Republican nomination for president in 2016, Donald Trump, in Ted Cruz's words, is a pathological liar. He's uh, a mortal danger to, to this country. Uh, this guy, Donald Trump, who insults his wife, who claims that Cruz's dad helped to assassinate JFK, yep. um, Cruz then turns around and becomes Trump's biggest advocate, his best translator to the people of, of Texas, and goes so far as to commit sedition on, on behalf of, of the outgoing president. So yeah, this guy is, is pretty, uh, he's singular. We haven't seen anything like him in American politics in my lifetime. Now, as I said, some folks might say that that is sour grapes. You know, he lost to Cruz. It was a close race. They had a, you know, a vigorous campaign, uh, one of the most expensive U.S. Senate races in the history of the country. I mean, maybe still is. Um, here you have um, an old foe going after Cruz. Yeah. So I would expect that. But that's not the only person who was in his political crosshairs. Um, what's the guy's name? Adams, yep. Buzz Adams. Uh, Buzz, I like, I like the interview, by the way, that Buzz did. I, you know, one thing about these um, sort of pop culture interviews of politicians, like say, you know, Barack Obama goes on with Oprah or something like that. She would think to ask things that I would not yeah, think true. of. Right. Or or and reverse it. I would think to ask things that she would not think of. So there's a role for everybody to play in these things. But Buzz Adams asked something that I would think to think of that I would think of. <laughs> I would think to think of it and ask it. <laughs> um, he asked him about whether or not he might run for governor in Texas, because there's been some rumblings of this. And uh, Beto not happy with Governor Greg Abbott. And specifically, he had a lot to say about Abbott's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. You know what? I, it, it's something I'm going to think about. Um, this state has suffered perhaps more than any other uh, in, in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the worst recession since the, the Great Depression. And it, it is particularly galling to me and to you and everyone who's listening to this that El Paso in one of the hardest hit states was, if not is, the hardest hit city. Um, so many people dying so quickly that you set up 10 mobile morgues. Uh, you have to call in the National Guard to move the, the dead bodies. Um, and you, you have a, a complete indifference on the part of Governor Greg Abbott. So he takes direct aim at Abbott there, says he's thinking about whether he would run for governor. Is he still a viable candidate in Texas if he wants to run for something in a couple of years, Jeremy? I have heard um, multiple yeah. takes on this this week. After well, it's interesting. Comments. You know, Beto O'Rourke represents something I don't know if I've come across in politics before, where uh, he's probably the best Democrat to be able to take on Greg Abbott, and he's 
probably also the worst Democrat <laughs> to be able to take on Greg Abbott, right? You know, here's this guy who, you know, during the presidential election, you know, just felt like he was going a lot further left. In fact, you know, a lot of his policies, you know, when he was, you know, campaigning for the Senate turned a lot more aggressive. You think of things like on guns, you know, his yeah. conversation on guns mm-hmm. went from being pretty darn moderate for, you know, Texas to being pretty darn aggressive, like, hell yeah, I'm going to take your guns, you know, it's like, so on that, there's mm-hmm. a lot more out there and his negatives are clearly much higher than there had been before. So he starts a race against Governor Abbott with a lot of negatives already built in. But at the same time, there is nobody in the state of Texas and maybe in the nation who can raise money like Beto O'Rourke can for a race for governor. Mm-hmm. You know, Greg Abbott has about $40 yeah. million in the tank right now. It's like if, if you don't think Beto O'Rourke can raise $40 million between now and Election Day, you, know, you, you haven't been paying attention. The guy could definitely do that. Maybe. Yeah, I wonder about that. I mean, I would go back and look, and I haven't done this, and maybe I should do due diligence on it. But I wonder if you look back at how much money he raised before, which was consider. I mean, what was it, eighty million dollars yeah. or so uh, for that for that Senate race? But how many of those came from Texas? Would be my first question. I think if you, if we knew that number, and like I say, I'll go back and look, and I'm sure it's significant. Uh, but if you go back and look, it would maybe give you kind of a baseline of where to start, right? For how much money could be raised, because this is a very Texas specific yeah. race. Whereas the U.S. Senate race, you're making more of a case to people about changing the Senate, and it's more of a national political story, yeah. if you will. Um, I'm yeah. sure he does have his. Now here's the here's my counter argument to that, which you might be about to say this. I'm going to jump in, jump ahead of you. He's just got fans all over the place, yeah. though, right? I mean, he has fans everywhere who would chip in yeah. five dollars, yeah. wouldn't they? I mean, from California to New York City, yeah. Which I'm sure his campaign wouldn't appreciate me saying it that way, <laughs> but but you know from from the yep. Hollywood liberals to the people in New York and everywhere else in between, the people who love Beto, he can raise money everywhere. I bet you he would start with about thirty million. Something yeah, like I, I, I you know the, the donor list he developed in his Senate campaign for sure, and then you, you know one of the things I thought you know the entire time he was running for president was you know. It, I know a lot of people thought he could be president. I didn't think he actually had a shot mm-hmm. at winning the White House, but I knew what he did have the potential mm-hmm. of doing, which is expanding his donor base even further, which he was able to do. The guy still raised $19 million, you know, and was a big fundraiser early on in that presidential race. And so the guy can mm-hmm. pull in money. You know, and I have no doubt, like, you know, his associations with, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams, uh, Willie Nelson, Oprah Winfrey, Mm -hmm. he's been having these people on these Zoom calls with him doing events with his pack. Uh, That is all, you know, just tells me this is a guy when he needs money, he's going to be able to call on a lot of friends who have a lot of influence in the donor world to kind of help him out beyond his incredible list that he already has. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I think he could easily make in a good financial battle against Greg Abbott. The question is, would it be enough to have money to be as a counter, you know, some of the impression that a lot of people in the middle are going to have that he went too far left? Cause that's where Abbott's going to go. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Abbott already went there uh, to your point about uh, his position on guns, which went further left as he ran for president. When Abbott was asked about it at that same press conference in Midland, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, well, you remember how Beto O'Rourke said that, hell yes, he was going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. And Abbott said, quote, I don't think that's going to sell real well in Texas. And I can imagine the ads right now. They would play that over and over and over. And one of the things that I think 
some Democrats missed, and some Republicans too probably, missed about this last election. We've talked about it a little bit here. If, if they missed it, they're just missing the show. They need to listen each week. Um, I don't think that, and, and I'm, I'm basing this on the election results. Texas didn't move left, right? It moved more, more anti-Trump because the numbers were closer in the top of the ticket race. But for the statewide races, and this was true in 18 and in 20, when it came to the candidates like Greg Abbott and John Cornyn, those are still 10-point races. Right. Um, that, you know, it, it changed a little for Trump. And I think it changed certainly for Cruz. And it's interesting that Cruz was team Trump when he was almost getting beaten by yep. Beto O'Rourke. Right. So that makes a huge difference. Um, and then I, I did get this question. Would Beto have the same kind of down ballot effect? Maybe, maybe not. We don't have straight ticket voting anymore which was a huge uh, issue in 2018 when he was able to help a lot of Democrats down ballot. I mean, we had 12 new Democrats in the Texas House, two new Democrats in the Texas Senate, and two congressional districts flipped in 18 in Dallas and Houston from Republican to Democratic. Again, I don't know that you get that same kind of effect, and I don't think that you can look at the makeup of the electorate and say that we have shifted to the left. If anything, it was Republicans who did learn uh, during their elections that what they needed to do was yeah. hold the middle in Texas in the 2020 election, where we had all this increased turnout on both sides with Republicans and Democrats doing extraordinary work to turn out more voters. The Republicans maybe didn't get as much credit because they weren't putting press releases out about it, about how they were you know, signing people up to vote. But in the final analysis, they probably got 300,000, 350, almost 400K to show out who were new Republicans. Right. Well, and, and interesting, you know, the one thing that, you know, Beto O'Rourke did that, you know, really no Democrat has done in Texas in 20 years is figure out how to campaign in the state. Right. You know, it's like you can't just do, you know, you know, with all due respect to Wendy Davis or to MJ Hager, you just can't do a bunch of TV ads and think you're going to get there. You know, if you remember early mm -hmm. on in the. The whole thing about the Better Work campaign, what got him rolling wasn't TV ads. It, like, the, you know, it was all just social media and him going all over the state. Yeah, and like really campaigning yeah, right. in places yeah. that, you know, and like, you know, you got to burn some shoe leather. You know, and, and it's weird that as I watched Democrats in this last cycle, you know, some of it was because of COVID, like we've talked about before on the show. But like they didn't do that. They didn't go anywhere. They were literally, you know, they did the opposite. It's almost like everybody looked at what Beto O'Rourke did in 2018 and said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to try to do what Wendy Davis did. Wendy Davis is my <laughs> model. You know, you guys take Beto O'Rourke wherever. <laughs> it's like, wait, wait, Beto O'Rourke literally showed us a new playbook that Democrats could use and nobody used it. You know, it's like, and so it's, yeah. you're just wondering, like, now if Beto were to run for governor, and he has the same kind of energy, and he's still like, you know, making mm -hmm. Greg Abbott work. You know, it's like that's what that's I don't see what him calm Abbott, down. I, I don't see yeah. him calming and, down. And that's what, and that's what O'Rourke did ultimately in 2018. He made Ted Cruz have to work to get to reelection. You know, granted, I know people who don't like Ted Cruz are going, oh, but he still lost or whatever. But just like, but in Ted yeah. Cruz's case, it really made him have to go to battle. You know, to hold on to a seat in Texas. Remember how odd that was, you know, based on Texas history here. It's like that just doesn't happen anymore. And there we had like one Democrat has figured out how to run statewide. And I'm literally saying one Democrat in, you know, Texas in the last 30 years has figured out how to run statewide. 
Yeah. Well, hope springs eternal for Democrats. There are some folks who think that I'm way too hard on the Democratic Party in Texas. I don't think so. I think I'm pretty objective about it. I did see some comments on Twitter this week. You can never read too much into Twitter. There's a lot of bots and a lot of people who are just, they think yeah, that that's yeah. real life. But I did, I, did see, I did see some people saying that Braddock is the Fox News of Whoa. Texas, which I thought was which I thought was delightful. Okay. Um, but let me say this for those people who think I'm the Fox News of Texas. Hope springs eternal for Texas Democrats. I look back at the 2014 general election where $40 million or so was spent on behalf of Wendy Davis, who you've been talking about, um, and she still loses yeah. by 21 points. A complete disaster, right? I mean, it's terrible. And, and, and at that time, I thought there is no way Democrats are going to spend money in this state again, uh, you know, anytime soon. I mean, this is just pointless. It, it, it seems so futile, right? Flip forward to 2018, Beto O'Rourke raising $80 million to run against Ted Cruz. He brings it within, you know, two or three point race, but still loses, right? And I think, okay, eh, well, you know, they got closer, so maybe they still have some case. And, you know, the theory of their case, as people like to say, go to 2020 tens of millions of dollars spent to try to flip the Texas House of Representatives in favor of the Democrats. And they don't pick up one net yep. new, new seat, right? The, the Republicans lose one, Democrats lose one. It's a wash for all that. Then I think, no, it's done. Forget it. They'll never, they'll never get money again. And then, you know, here we are. We're not even a full month into 2021. And the former congressman from El Paso does a local radio interview that has started the conversation again yep. for why Democrats may get millions of dollars once again to try to flip Texas. Yeehaw, everybody. We will see what happens. We'll keep track of all of it for you. All right. Uh, is that another like show? It fills the tank. Uh, I'm done. Now for the plugs. If you enjoy this show, and you know you do, you've listened to 45 minutes of it, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast, whatever it is. Jeremy's work appears at HoustonChronicle.com, where you should be a subscriber. And for up-to-the-minute intelligence on what's happening in your state government, go to QuorumReport.com, click subscriptions, and we will get you signed up. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.